All right, why don't we go ahead and get started? So uh, today we have a visitor, Afshin Marashi, coming down from Oklahoma University to give us a talk about uh, patron and patriot, Dean Shairani, and the revival of Indo-Iranian culture. I'm Afshin from back at UCLA. We studied there at the same time. It's kind of good to have him nearby. So hopefully we'll have him visit down every now and then. And uh, hopefully we'll visit up there a bit more as well. Hopefully we'll build kind of an axis of something between here and <laughs> Oklahoma. I'm not sure what exactly. But anyway, Afshin is uh, the Farzana Family Chair of Iranian Studies at Oklahoma University in the Department of History and, excuse me, the Department of International and Area Studies. And his main publication, many of you have read this, especially those of you who are in my class, have read uh, parts of his research. Uh, his main book is Nationalizing Iran, Culture, Power, and the State from 1870 to 1940. And he works on nationalism and modern Iranian history in, in very general terms. So, without further ado, thank you. Thank you all. Well, thank you all for being here. Thanks, Kamran, for in, uh, inviting me and for making all of this happen. Uh, it's really nice to be here in Austin. I've been here a few times, but this is, I was just saying to someone, this is the first time I've had a chance to get a feel for the town and the campus, and it's really... Uh, Really nice place to be. Man, it's such a nice day. Noruz, happy Noruz to all of you as well. Uh, and, you know, obviously UT has such a great tradition of Iranian studies going back to Professor Jazoyeri and uh, Professor Fermon Fermoyan and Ghanun Parvar and, and Kamran is sort of continuing that tradition. So, as you guys have a lot to be proud of, and I'm glad to see that it's such a thriving community of graduate students. Here as well. I'm at the University of Oklahoma, not too far away, five and a half hours. Uh, so I'm hoping to make the trip down here and use your great library. Uh, but I invite all of you to come up to OU sometime. And I, I was speaking to Kamran about this as well, that we can hopefully institutionalize uh, some kind of exchange and maybe have some kind of research seminar up at OU sometime and we'll uh, invite you up and do something like that as well. Um, what I want to try to talk to you about today is really a small part of a bigger project which kind of grew out of my, my first book uh, that focuses on uh, the, the cultural history of nationalism and its relationship between Iran and India. And in, in particular, uh, the Zoroastrian connection. And maybe that'll be the title of the book that comes out of this. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, to sort of try to say something about the revival of antiquity uh, in Iranian nationalism and the role that the city of Bombay played and the Zoroastrian community of Bombay, the Parsi community of Bombay, uh, the role that they played in, in reviving and contributing towards uh, the revival of antiquity in Iran. And, and as I've done the research for this, and there's a, a small bit of this in the, in the book, in the first book, uh, but I've sort of, as I've gone more and more into all of this, the figure of Din Shah Irani, and here he is, uh, seems to uh, really be a kind of prominent figure in this story. And uh, as I develop the book manuscript, what I'm hoping to do uh, is to give a, a considerable more amount of attention to uh, his role uh, as a kind of intermediary in all of this. So I'm going to try to present something uh, along those lines uh, for you. Uh, when Din Shah Irani, the prominent Parsi scholar, lawyer, and philanthropist, uh, died in 1938, early November of 1938. Uh, when he died, the outpouring of tributes acknowledging his lifetime of service to the Zoroastrian communities of India and Iran took place almost simultaneously uh, in both Bombay and Tehran. In Bombay, the city where he had been born to parents 
of Iranian Zoroastrian extraction, front page obituaries uh, were published in the local newspapers uh, uh, commenting on his passing as one of the... And, as one of the founders of the Iranian Zoroastrian Anjuman and the Iran League. And these were the, the two main Zoroastrian organizations in Bombay uh, that, that engaged in a great deal of charity and philanthropy. And he was the founder and president of both of these organizations. Uh, within Iran, news of Din Shah Irani's death also received wide notice from both the local Zoroastrian community as well as from Iran's modernist and nationalist intellectual milieu who had come to know Irani through his popular Persian-language writings on Zoroastrianism and pre-Islamic Iranian history. Keikhos Roshahroch, the Zoroastrian deputy uh, to the Iranian Majlis, who's also a very important character in, in this story, uh, organized a memorial service for Irani uh, at which prominent Iranian scholars and literary figures paid tribute to their friend, colleague, uh, and patron. After the memorial service, Shah Rukh sent a telegram from Tehran uh, to Bombay, to the Iran League, um, expressing condolences uh, at the passing of Din Shah Irani. These expressions of sympathy uh, in both India and Iran, almost simultaneously, uh, at the moment of Din Shah Irani's passing, demonstrate the recognition that he had achieved by 1938, the year that he died, uh, as an important intermediary between uh, Bombay Parsis and Iran's modernist and nationalist intellectual milieu. And yet, despite this record of affection, um, and despite an equally explicit record of the important role that he played uh, in reviving Zoroastrianism and antiquity among Iranian intellectuals, it is surprising how minor a place Irani has come to occupy in the historiography of interwar Iranian and Indian cultural intellectual history. And resituating Irani within this history, which is in a sense really what I'm trying to do uh, with this presentation and with the, the article, uh, brings to the surface uh, a number of what I would say are overlooked themes uh, that characterized India and Iran's history uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Most importantly, acknowledging Din Shah Irani's contribution to the history of Iranian nationalism helps to redefine that history as a transnational cultural and intellectual project. Uh, the discovery of Iran's pre-Islamic cultural heritage was to a large extent tied to currents of thought circulating among the Zoroastrian community of South Asia, uh, who were themselves reimagining a common classical past shared by Indian Parsis and Iranians. Din Shah Irani's life and work really best represents how this Indo-Iranian cultural and intellectual history took shape at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, others, get my water here. Others have uh, pointed out elements of this story. Uh, Monica Ringer, another UCLA alumnus, right? uh, in her recent book *Pious Citizens*, I recommend to you. Uh, she has detailed the religious exchange between Parsi and Iranian Zoroastrians as part of a project that she calls Transplanting Religious Reform. Uh, Mohammad Tavakoli, whom I'm sure you're all very familiar with his really seminal writings in all of these areas, uh, his work has also detailed the roots of this cultural exchange uh, to texts that were produced really as early as the 16th century and part of a Persianate cultural milieu. Din Shah Irani's life and work fits within this larger history uh, 
uh, and helps to illustrate the great extent to which this exchange between Iran and India accelerated uh, during the early decades of the 20th century and really reaching new levels during the 1920s and 30s. This acceleration was fueled in part by the growing resources of patronage uh, made available by the Parsi Charitable Foundations in Bombay. And that's also a very important part of the story, is this is a story of philanthropy and the role of the, the great prosperity of the Parsi community of Bombay and how they used uh, their wealth uh, in, in forms of charity. And one part of that was to reach out and connect in various ways to the, the Zoroastrian community uh, of Iran. Uh, this acceleration... Uh, was also fueled by the efforts of the newly established Pahlavi state, which by the 1920s had adopted an Indo-Iranian classical heritage as the basis of Iran's official nationalism. And in a sense, that's what I'm trying to do with this project, both in this smaller portion of this project and the larger uh, book form, is to really try to tell the, the, the intellectual history uh, of Bombay Parsis and Iranian nationalists uh, and the revival of pre-Islamic history uh, in that context. Um, what also fueled this acceleration was the increasingly important role played by the city of Bombay uh, in the commercial system of the Indian Ocean. And uh, the person who's written recently about this, which uh, maybe most of you or some of you at least have uh, come across uh, his writings, is Niall Green. Uh, who's written about uh, the commercial system of the Indian Ocean and the, the social and economic exchanges within the Indian Ocean during this period. Uh, as linkages between Bombay and the Persian Gulf trading cities became more formalized over the course of the 19th century, especially as a result of steam-powered vessels. Uh, so there's a kind of a history of technology uh, here as well. Uh, the flow of commercial, uh, commercial goods, including books and printed materials, uh, that circulated between India and Iran was greatly facilitated. And in a sense, that's also part of the story that I'm trying to tell here, is the, the story of books. And part of this new intellectual history that I'm trying to uh, write is not only a history of ideas that are sort of disembodied, uh, but a history of how ideas circulate and how those uh, ideas circulate through really the physical production, circulation, uh, sale of books uh, is really a part of the story that I'm, I'm trying to uh, tell in, in, this, uh, in this project. And the role of the commercial system of the Indian Ocean and the role of Bombay as a, a print center and a commercial center and an export center uh, plays a very important part of that. By the 1920s and the 1930s, the decades of Din Shah Irani's uh, greatest intellectual and civic activity, this system of economic exchange in printed texts uh, had become part of the mainstay of commercial relations between Bombay and Iran's growing reading market. And that's another part of the story, too, the, the growing reading market inside, inside Iran. Uh, Dean Shah Irani's most significant contribution to the history of Indo-Iranian relations was to facilitate um, this exchange of printed books through his tireless efforts of writing, translating, and facilitating the publication of printed materials meant for export to Iran. Um, 
Ultimately, the role played by Irani, though still largely overlooked and unacknowledged uh, in the conventional accounts of Iran's cultural intellectual history, not only facilitated this textual exchange uh, between India and Iran during the interwar period, but also reinforced the Pahlavi state's nation-building project uh, by helping to bring uh, to the attention of Iranians, uh, Iranian readers, newly available neoclassical texts uh, that vividly portrayed Iran's pre-Islamic Zoroastrian heritage. Um, at this point, let me just say a little bit about Din Shah Irani's uh, family background, which might also really help to situate him a little bit. Um, and place him in the context of the Zoroastrian community of Bombay to some extent. And I'll just summarize that very briefly. Uh, it's maybe important to remember, and this might be something that we, we tend to forget, is although we might be familiar with the history of the Parsi community of Bombay in Western India, which obviously goes back to the 7th, 8th, 9th century, um, you know, and that's the Parsi community. However, what we tend to not really... Uh, know very much about, and in a sense we've forgotten about, is that there is another wave of migration of Zoroastrians uh, from Iran to India that took place during the 19th century. In some sense, you might say the, the migration patterns never really stopped. Uh, there was always a, a trickle, you might say. But in the 19th century, there was a new wave of migration of Zoroastrians from Iran to India, uh, primarily from Kerman and Yazd. Um, and Din Shah Irani's family background uh, is tied to this wave of migration. And that's why his, his name is Irani. The, the name Irani, maybe some of you are familiar with this, the, the name Irani is a specific designation that refers, is a family name, but it refers to members of this later wave of Iranian migration to India from the 19th century. Um, and that's sort of the, the context, the surname Irani in India generally refers to these 19th century Zoroastrian immigrants. Um, and so that's an important context in order to situate him. In that sense, and in my larger written uh, article on this, uh, I think that's an important point because it helps to explain how he played this role as an intermediary between Iran and India even more in that he was not, he was kind of a marginal Parsi, a recent Zoroastrian, still having relatively recent ties to Iran from really within a generation and a half. Uh, so you could th think of him as a, a second generation <laughs> uh, Iranian Indian uh, in that sense. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Anyway, uh, the history of the Iranian migration to India is, of course, important. But really what I'm more interested in, in discussing in the context of this presentation is Din Shah Irani's literary, scholarly, and uh, publication efforts during his most productive period as a cultural and textual mediator uh, between Bombay uh, and Iran. Uh, and here, uh, Din Shah Irani undertook these scholarly, literary, and textual efforts after the completion of his formal education at Elphinstone College in Bombay, and that's what you see here, Elphinstone College in Bombay. I think this photograph was probably taken around 1900, probably right around the time when he was a student there, and I was actually there in January, and I, I can tell you it doesn't look anything like that anymore. The, the building is there, but uh, the streets look very different. Um, he graduated in 1901 with a bachelor's degree in Persian language and literature, which was taught there at that time. Uh, 
Uh, his knowledge of the Persian language came primarily from his formal schooling, uh, as, the Irani, as the Irani community of Bombay had largely adopted Gujarati and English as their vernacular languages by the early 20th century. Now, that's not entirely true. The Persian was still uh, in use in Bombay as a vernacular language in this period. But in general, and sort of the story of the decline of the Persian language in India is something that people have written about, and it's still, I suppose, to some extent, uh, open for some debate to how rapidly the decline of Persian was. People maybe tend to overemphasize uh, the pace of decline of the Persian language in India. But by the early 20th century, uh, Persian was certainly in decline, uh, especially among the Parsis, who, as I say, had, had really prospered uh, during the colonial period and really adopted Gujarati uh, and uh, English as their primary languages. So for someone like Din Shah Irani, uh, Persian became a language that um, he studied really in a formal setting at Elphinstone College to a large extent. And he studied it as a classical language, maybe the way graduate students today study Persian. Uh, Dean Shah Irani also studied Avestan and Pahlavi, uh, while he was also a student at the, the Jamshidji Jijiboy Zartoshti Madrasa, which was a private institution established in 1863 through the philanthropy of the Jijipoy family, another prominent Parsi family. The school had originally been established for the purpose of training a new generation of Zoroastrian priests. Uh, but by the early 20th century, when Din Shah Irani uh, was a student there, here's, a, here's another photo of him, probably during his student days, I, I think. Um, by the early 20th century, uh, the mission of this school had broadened beyond, beyond training just priests, or mobeds, uh, in order really to attract more students, students like Din Shah Irani, who were part of a new Bombay Parsi intelligentsia consisting of middle-class professional lay scholars of a reformed Zoroastrianism. And that's an important thing to also think about a little bit. The, the Parsi community had become a kind of professionalized, anglicized, middle class living in a, the cosmopolitan city of Bombay. And the, the culture of Zoroastrianism that evolved within that context really reflected the values of a kind of middle class Zoroastrianism. And in a sense, that's the, the form of Zoroastrianism that was taught at this uh, Zoroastrian school where uh, Din Shah Irani also studied uh, intermittently, Avestan and Pahlavi. Uh, and Monica Ringer's book, I think, gives you an even better picture of, of this idea of a kind of middle-class Zoroastrianism, if I can put it that way. Um, I should also say that Dean Shah Irani I also knew French and Italian, although he doesn't really reference anything in French and Italian in any of his writings. Uh, he knew, so he knew Persian, Avestan, Pahlavi, English, Gujarati, French, and Italian. And in the course of doing the research for this project, I actually was able to make contact with his son, who is alive and well, uh, at approximately, I think he's 91 or 2 years old, Kehosro uh, Irani, who is still a kind of prominent, uh, much revered figure within the Irani community. He's actually, Kehosro Irani, the son of Dean Shah Irani, is a retired professor of philosophy at the City University of New York. Uh, and uh, through various contacts and acquaintances, <laughs> I was able to uh, get his uh, address and his phone number, so I managed to 
have a, a phone conversation with him. And it was through uh, his son, Dean Shairani's son, that I was told that uh, the father uh, also knew French and Italian, although there's nothing in the sources uh, that shows he used any of that. But in any case, gives you a sense that he was something of a linguistic polymath, you might say. Uh, let me give you a couple of other brief biographical uh, points that I think are also important to understand uh, the significance of Dean Shah Irani. In, in addition to his formal schooling in Persian and Avestan and Pahlavi, Dean Shah Irani also uh, completed a degree uh, in law in 1914, also from uh, the University of Bombay. And in fact, he went on to have a very successful legal career within the Bombay a Parsi legal community. And there's a history there itself to be told. There was a very large and active legal community of, of Parsi barristers and solicitors uh, in Bombay. Um, and Dean Shah Irani became a very prominent uh, attorney uh, in, the, in the Bombay legal community. And the second point that, I, that I'll make uh, relating to this is that it was through his legal connections during the same period uh, that Dean Shah Irani helped to establish these two Zoroastrian organizations that I mentioned to you, the Iran League and the Iranian Zoroastrian Anjuman. And these were major civic organizations that did all sorts of charity work uh, in terms of housing, uh, employment, in providing immigration services to newly arrived Iranian immigrants to Bombay. And there was a, a wave that continued even into the early 20th century of Iranian immigrants to Bombay. Um, these two organizations also helped in the upkeep of uh, Zoroastrian fire temples in Bombay. Uh, and they also helped, and this is really the, the, the context that I'm trying to emphasize here, is that these two Zoroastrian organizations, led by Dean Shah Irani, uh, also were involved in uh, sponsoring the publication of books, uh, certain books that were meant for export to Iran. Uh, I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. The result of his early education, as well as the success of his early legal career, was that by the early 1920s, when Irani began his main literary and publication efforts, he had by that point achieved not only proficiency in Persian, Avestan, and Pahlavi, as well as French and Italian, but, and maybe this is at least as important and maybe more important, he had also become intimately familiar with the main academic, religious, commercial, and philanthropic institutions of the Bombay Zoroastrian community. Uh, and these institutional connections uh, and personal and professional ties uh, greatly facilitated his literary publication and intellectual efforts uh, as a mediator between the Bombay uh, Zoroastrians and the Iranian nationalist community. So he was not only an intellectual, but he was something of a civic leader. And a kind of, uh, he had an organizational capacity to make things happen. <laughs> uh, and that really enabled his, his uh, ability to uh, be a facilitator in this way. Uh, let me give you a number of examples. Uh, make sure I'm on that. Yes. Let me give you a number of examples of Dean Shah Irani's publication efforts during this period and the role that he played in facilitating this textual exchange between India and Iran in the 1920s until his death in 1938. And he died rather young, actually. I think he was in his 50s. He was born in 1881. I think he was, uh, what is that, 57? I'm not sure. Uh, but he had kidney disease, apparently. He died uh, rather 
prematurely. Uh, but Dean Shairani's first literary effort um, at mediating uh, between Iranian nationalists and Bombay Parsis came with the translation into English of Mirza de Eshki's famous poem or operetta uh, by the name of the Rastakhize Padishahana Iran, the, the resurrection of Iran's kings. Uh, Eshki's famous operetta, uh, and it's, I guess, a one-act opera, so it's, you might think of it as a poem. I'm not sure how, how often it's been actually performed. I think it was performed maybe very briefly in the early 20s, and I think more recently I heard this was performed uh, somewhere in London. Uh, but I think it's really primarily known not as an opera or a one-act opera, but as a poem. But it, it was written as an operetta. It has not only uh, poetry in it, uh, but it, there's a staging that's written into the, uh, into the text. Um, Eshki's operetta was originally written in Persian uh, sometime around 1915. The operetta is a poetic meditation on the lost golden age of Iranian antiquity. In the literary history of Iranian nationalism, Eshki's Rastakhiz uh, marks an important stage in the symbolic reinscription of Iranian antiquity as part of an emerging Iranian nationalist consciousness. This is in 1915. Uh, in the context of Din Shah Irani's own intellectual discovery of antiquity, Eshki's operetta uh, made a profound impression uh, as an indication that Iranians, like the Parsis, were rediscovering their ancient cultural heritage. And let me briefly describe this operetta for you. Uh, the operetta itself, to give you a, a sense of this, I'm, I'm not sure how why Eshki, I think, is fairly widely known, but I'm not sure if this particular text is particularly well known. Uh, the operetta, the poem, begins with a traveler who falls asleep amidst the ruins of the Sasanian Ark of Sesaphon. So you can sort of imagine the staging of, of this operetta. When the traveler awakes in a, a still dreaming trance, according to the staging of Eshki. Uh, he comes into the living presence of apparitions, embodying mythic and historic figures from Iranian antiquity. What follows is a series of lyrical lamentations on the sad state of Iran's present condition, as voiced by each of these ghostly figures. Okay. The cycle of characters, uh, each emerging from the ruins of Sesaphon, uh, as ghostly apparitions continues from Cyrus, Darius, Anushiravan, uh, and others. Uh, towards the end of the staging of the opera, Zoroaster himself appears uh, on stage. Uh, and as described in Eshki's staging, Zoroaster, like an angel clad in white and wearing long silver-gray locks and beard, appears. So you can kind of imagine this, this stage. Zoroaster then speaks, and if I can, uh, reading from Din Shah Irani's translation here. Uh, in the ancient soil lie hidden seeds from which a future race springing shall replace the living corpses that Iran disgrace. These shall help Iran to raise her head to heights never reached before. This is just a little snippet from this, uh, this poem. Uh, what is striking is the keen interest shown by the Parsi community in Eshki's operetta. It was Din Shah Irani who first brought Eshki's Rastakhiz to the attention of Bombay's Parsi community. In 1924, Irani published an English language translation of this operetta. 
first in a limited edition uh, booklet, and then later in a more widely circulating literary magazine. Uh, Irani's effort uh, to bring Eshki's operetta to the attention of the Parsi audiences um, fits within this larger project of mediating between those cultural, literary, and political trends inside Iran and those among the Indian Parsis. Part of the goal of that mediation was to make the Parsis aware that younger Iranian intellectuals and literary figures were discovering their pre-Islamic Zoroastrian heritage. In the context of Dinsha Irani's own life and work, the 1924 English translation of Eshki's Rastakhiz marked the beginning uh, of a very active and very productive period of publishing, translating, uh, and sponsoring uh, book production uh, between Parsis and Iranians. And let me say just a little bit about that. Um, and there's lots of examples of this. And you know, in the longer, larger version of this, when it becomes a book, you know, I'll probably need to be more comprehensive. Um, but for now, let me just highlight maybe the most important um, example of Dean Shah Irani's sort of patronage of, of books uh, intended for an Iranian audience. Uh, by far the most important, sustained, and productive period in this regard took place between 1925 and 1933, when Dinsha Irani participated in an intellectual and textual collaboration with Ebrahim Purdavud. Uh, very few figures have come to occupy as central a place in the intellectual history of Iranian nationalism as Purdavud. And here he is. This is Ibrahim Purdavud as a young man. And, uh, you know, within Iranian intellectual history, he's a somewhat familiar figure, I would say. But most Iranians uh, who sort of are aware of Ibrahim Purdavud probably remember him when he was something of an institutionalized figure of the 1950s and 60s, when he was uh, kind of professor at University of Tehran and so forth. But this is a picture of him in, in Bombay in the 1920s. Um, his membership as part of a group of expatriate Iranian nationalist intellectuals in Berlin during the years of the First World War, which is a context he's also sometimes remembered in, uh, and his contributions to the early Iranian nationalist journals and magazines like Kaveh, the famous journal that was published in Berlin, and Rastakhiz, another journal uh, that he published. These are perhaps themselves enough to secure for Purdavud, a permanent place in Iranian nationalism's intellectual history. Beyond his early career, however, Purdavud went on to become one of the great scholars of Iran's 20th century pre-Islamic revival, becoming the first modern Iranian, <clears throat> the first modern Iranian scholar to learn Avestan and Pahlavi, uh, as well as mastering the German, English, and French Orientalist traditions. Uh, and collaborating as well with Parsi scholars in Bombay. By the middle of the 20th century, Purdavud worked as a professor uh, of Iranian studies at the University of Tehran. Uh, he published numerous scholarly translations of Zoroastrian texts into modern Persian, and also produced popular works that became intellectual, uh, that became the intellectual foundation of much of what became the Pahlavi state's uh, official nationalism uh, that became, as I say, institutionalized really at mid-century 
Uh, and that's the context he's more maybe commonly uh, remembered in. While the centrality of Pur Davud's position in Iran's 20th century cultural and intellectual history is generally acknowledged, his collaboration with Din Shah Irani is, by contrast, generally ignored. Din Shah Irani was a profoundly important figure in Ibrahim Purdavud's early career. Uh, it was during Din Shah Irani's presidency of the Iran League and the Iranian Zoroastrian Anjumand that Irani uh, funded Purdavud's travel to Bombay in 1924. Uh, Irani collaborated closely with Purdavud during his two and a half year stay in India. <clears throat> and this is a picture of. Uh, Pur Davud in the middle. I don't have my laser pointer, but that's okay. Pur Davud is in the middle with the flowers. <laughs> and uh, this is Din Shah Irani, of course. And the other figures are, are also very important characters in this story that I won't uh, pause to, to uh, give you their stories in this context. But uh, this is a very interesting photograph. Um, <clears throat> Now, you might say, you might ask the question, you know, how did Din Shah Irani come to know who Ibrahim Purdavud was to invite him to come to India? And the answer to that question uh, actually highlights something interesting, which is that Din Shah Irani was in constant and continuous contact with Iranian intellectuals inside Iran as well as in Europe, largely through letters and the writing of letters. Din Shah Irani had traveled to Europe and he had traveled to Paris in particular. And in Paris in this period, there was a famous Iranian living in Paris by the name of Mohammad Qazvini that maybe some of you are familiar with. He's generally considered um, you know, one of the, sort of the, the great scholars of the Persian medieval literary tradition. Uh, and he lived in Paris for something like 30 years, from 1905 to 1939, something like that. Uh, and he was very. He worked at the Bibliothèque Nationale. He was a kind of key figure in canonizing official editions of manuscript texts that were in the Bibliothèque Nationale. He worked with E. G. Brown uh, in producing kind of standardized texts in sort of modern script and so forth. Uh, and Din Shah Irani uh, came to know Mohammad Ghazvini, and Ghazvini's apartment in Paris, and this is sort of part of the story that will make its way into this book eventually, Ghazvini's uh, apartment in Paris became something of a Parisian salon uh, of Iranian intellectuals. As they traveled to Paris, everybody would go and pay a visit to the great scholar Mohammad Ghazvini. Uh, and Ibrahim Purdav would also spend some time in Paris, uh, came to know Ghazvini, uh, and so did Din Shah Irani. And so this, uh, this familiarity evolved into a correspondence. And uh, the, at some point, Din Shah Irani asked for a recommendation from Professor Ghazvini. And he wasn't a professor. He was basically a, I don't know, he would be basically a, a library bibliographer, you might think of him. He was sort of a, uh, a cataloger <laughs> at the Bibliothèque Nationale. Uh, but he was sort of had a reputation uh, far beyond that. But in any case... Uh, it was through this um, friendship, through letters, that Ghazvini recommended uh, to uh, Din Shah Irani that Ibrahim Purdavud be invited to Bombay. Uh, and it's through this connection uh, that Ibrahim Purdavud made his way to Bombay in 1924, 1925. Uh, but part of what, the reason why I mention that is because it, it highlights another part of the story 
of what was happening in Iran and the world by the 1920s, which is letters, communication. You know, today, of course, we think of you know, the information revolution of email. But by the 1920s, you know, obviously there's a longer history of epistolary correspondence. But by the 1920s, it was very easy to stay in correspondence you know, all over the world uh, as a result of you know, the uh, technological advances of uh, the postal system. Uh, and so through this exchange, uh, Ibrahim Purdavud uh, was invited to Bombay. In 1924, he stayed there for two and a half or three years. Uh, and what he did there during this period was uh, Irani facilitated Purdavud's activities as he studied with Parsi scholars. He lectured at Parsi-sponsored gatherings across Western India. And most importantly, uh, Din Shah Irani helped Purdavud to publish a series of works that became foundational texts in the history of Iran's 20th century pre-Islamic revival. It was under Irani's direction and through the financial sponsorship of the Iran League and the Iranian Zoroastrian Anjumat that Purdavud's Persian language writings were published in Bombay during the 1920s and 1930s and then exported to the reading public of Iran. Uh, Let me show you a few other pictures here. These are some other pictures of Din Shah Irani on the right. I should tell you, this person on the left, Marker, he was the great philanthropist, actually. Din Shah Irani, I think he actually donated some of his own money, too. (laughs) But he was more of the facilitator. Uh, Marker, Pastonji Marker, was really one of the great wealthy Parsi philanthropists of Bombay during this period. And he gave all sorts of money to do all sorts of things, uh, including uh, the money to publish these books. Uh, this is another photo of uh, Purdavud in, uh, not sure if this is in Bombay or somewhere in western India. He traveled quite a bit throughout western India. Here's another picture uh, of uh, Purdavud and Din Shah Irani in Pune. 19th. This is from another trip. Uh, but here's Purdavud and there's Irani with the Mobeds uh, at a Zoroastrian institution in, uh, in Pune. This is in Navsari. Uh, and Navsari is another small town in western India near Surat where there is a very famous uh, fire temple and library, Zoroastrian library. I was just there in January for a big conference. Uh, and this photograph was taken inside the fire temple. And here's Din Shah Irani again with the Mobeds of Navsari. Um, in the interest of time, let me just give you a, a little bit of a, a brief introduction to a couple of, um, of these texts, of these textual collaborations <clears throat> between Irani and Purdavud. The first appeared in 1925. This text, the first collaboration, textual collaboration, was a slim 100-page Persian language volume written by Purdavud called the Iran Shah. And this is the cover page. The, and that term Iran Shah is the name that the Parsis gave to the sacred fire of Zoroastrianism that they had brought with them from Iran to India in the 8th, 9th, 10th century and sort of preserved the fire of Zoroastrian from, Zoroastrianism from, in, from Iran to India. And that fire in, in India became known as the Iran Shah. And it also became the title of this very interesting, slim, 100-page book 
that was the first example of this textual collaboration. And I have it for you here. And I'd be happy to circulate it. Please, this is, be very careful with this, okay? I, I won't tell you to what lengths I went to get. This is the first edition, 1925, 1926 book, okay? In a very good condition. I think, I don't know, I, I won't speculate whose it was. I, I got it from a Parisian antiquarian book dealer. I won't tell you how much I spent on it. It's tax deductible. But um, it may have been Mohammed Ghazvini's copy. I don't know. But I'll circulate this, please. And don't steal it. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, so let me tell you a little bit about this book. It contained Poor Davud's brief history of the Zoroastrian exodus from Iran following the 7th century Arab Muslim conquest. Uh, the main text of Poor Davud's Iran Shah begins... Uh, begins with what will become later in the 20th century uh, a rather conventional Persian language prose rendering of the Islamic conquest of Iran, describing the invasion of the Arab Muslim armies, for example, in terms of a military conquest in which the Kianid flag fell to the enemies. Uh, the decisive Arab Muslim victory at the Battle of Qadisiyya is likewise described as a dark day for the kingdom. Later in the text, Pur Davud describes the final exodus of Iranian Zoroastrians from Iran. The enemy, he writes, would not grant the Zoroastrians safety, and they were forced to say goodbye to Iran and their ancestral homeland and set out for India. Like I say, a rather conventional mid-century uh, prose rendering uh, of this history. By the 1920s, Iranians on a significant scale we're only beginning to learn of the Bombay Parsi community's existence and had very little detailed knowledge of the history of Zoroastrianism or a feeling of a shared history uh, with the Parsis. Pur Davud and Irani's collaboration in publishing uh, the Iran Shah uh, was therefore carefully selected as a suitable initial text, uh, a text that worked to introduce the Parsis to the Iranians. This was a, a book that was meant for a, an audience of Iranian readers. It was produced in Bombay, published in Bombay, but exported to Iran. What is also noteworthy about the Iran Shah volume is the over 50 pages of photographs uh, contained in this pamphlet. These photographs visually depicted <coughs> key Parsi religious institutions, uh, such as hospitals, schools, hotels, charitable institutes, <coughs> factories, all of these sort of symbols of Parsi modernity and the great prosperity of the Parsis, all of which had been built through the efforts of the Parsi community. <coughs> the portraits also included uh, portraits of key Parsi community leaders and philanthropists. <coughs> this visual referencing of the Parsis and in particular, the visual referencing of the great prosperity achieved by the Parsis in India reinforced Purdavud and Irani's larger aim of introducing Iranian re uh, readers to the great achievements uh, of what was now portrayed as the distant national compatriots of Iranians. So in a sense, seeing the great prosperity of Parsis and understanding this shared history showed Iranians uh, what modernity could be. So this great, modern, prosperous community of Iranians living in Bombay. This became something of a, 
a way of introducing modernity to Iranians as well. Significantly, the photographic introduction of the Parsis uh, to Iranians was done not through the circulation of the written text of Hurdavud's historical narrative, which is also important, but in this case, through the circulation of what I would call the visual text of these photographs. Let me show you some of these photographs. And this is of the Parsi Charitable Institute. Remember, this is what Iranians inside Iran are seeing for the first time as a visual representation of the Parsis of Bombay. And that's sort of the context in which these images are, are significant. This is a factory, the Pettit Mill. The Parsis, of course, were uh, very prosperous in the textile industry as well as in the opium industry. There's no pictures of the opium industry. But the textile industry was uh, very prominent. Sort of factories that were built by the Parsis became a very important part of this. Hospitals. Uh, a Parsi neighborhood, a very kind of... Uh, modern-looking condominiums, if you will. This is a portrait of Zoroaster that's in this book. And this is also something, I'm not sure what to say about this or what to do with this, but in a sense, I think it's important, and I think someone's done a little bit of work on this. Uh, This is a photograph, of course, maybe the, the most common image that we associate with Zoroaster, the prophet Zoroaster. And it's a portrait that was painted in India by an Indian Parsi artist. And it's based broadly on an inscription uh, in Iran, a stone inscription. But certainly it's an interpretation (laughs) of what Zoroaster looked like. So in a sense, for Iranians in the 1920s, the the circulation of these visual images uh, of seeing Zoroaster for the first time in many cases, maybe in many, many cases, This is also a very important part of what was happening in this story, that the Parsis were giving Iranians a a visual vocabulary of what Zoroastrianism looked like and what their national prophet looked like. Um, And so that, I think, is also significant in ways that I'm not exactly sure what to do with or what other kind of research I can do on that. Uh, This is the monument of San John that was built by the Parsis to commemorate the landing spot where the Parsis arrived in India. This is a fire temple, images, Iranians seeing these images of fire temples. And these, in this case, you know, this isn't a portrait, this is a photograph. And this is another part of the history of technology that is, I think, important in this story. Uh, is that the technology facilitated a new type of cultural awareness uh, between Parsis and Iranians, uh, whether it's steamboats, uh, letter writing, facilitating that, or photography, or book publication. Uh, So these new technologies, I think, played a very important role. So these are all photographs of statues and monuments of the great Parsis in downtown Bombay. Other great philanthropists, the Kowaschi family. There is Pestonji Marker on the left, the great philanthropist. Um, so there's a lot of these, and, I, and let me just try to give you one more final example in all of this. By far, <clears throat> the most important collaboration between Irani and Purdavud was the publication, beginning in 1927, of Purdavud's Persian language translations of the Gatas the Yashts, and the Yasna. These translations 
along with the translation of virtually the entirety of the Avestan language scriptures into modern Persian during the course of Purdavud's subsequent career marked a major cultural achievement uh, in making the ancient Zoroastrian texts available for the first time uh, to modern Iranians. Uh, long neglected and inaccessible uh, because of the loss of the knowledge to read Avestan, nobody read Avestan by the 20th century, some priests maybe, uh, these new Persian language translations made the Zoroastrian scriptures available uh, for the first time to readers of modern Persian. And this is, a, this is another first edition that I have. I won't tell you how much I spent to get this. But uh, I didn't bring that one for you. This is still back home. This is the Gattas, uh, the first translation of the Gattas into modern Persian by Ibrahim Purdavud. Um, just as importantly, the translations were rendered in a way that not only translated the religious content of the original scriptures, but also produced a text that, that lyrically conformed to a, a Persian poetic sensibility. Purdavud's talent as a poet made him the ideal translator of these texts. And this is actually something that is, I think, also generally not known as very, very much, which is that Purdavud, before he became a scholar of Zoroastrianism, was a poet. He began as a poet in, of the Persian language. Uh, and then only later did he sort of devote himself to learning Avestan and Pahlavi. So it's this combination of being a, a poet of the modern Persian language and being a scholar of the ancient Persian language, the Avestan, that made Purdavud the ideal person, thanks to Muhammad Ghazvini to recommend him, <laughs> uh, to be the, the ideal person to render the Gattas into a, a modern Persian poetic language. Uh, and in that sense, this is bringing the Zoroastrian tradition, and this is, I think, part of what I'm going to try to argue, bringing the Zoroastrian tradition, the classical tradition, into a, a Persianate literary tradition. Uh, and bringing that, making that connection of a kind of medieval classical lyric poetry of the Persian language and bringing the Avesta into that tradition. Of course, Iranians were much more familiar with the Persianate literary tradition than they were with the Avestan tradition. In a sense, the Avesta was translated into the, the Persianate idiom of poetry. Uh, these Avestan language scriptures were translated by Purdavud and almost done, uh, under the sponsorship of the Parsi Charitable Foundations, uh, published in Bombay between 1927 and 1934. Din Shah Irani's role in these translation efforts was central to their success. The close-knit community <coughs> of uh, Parsi scholars in Bombay was an important resource for Purdavud in producing these translations. Uh, and we know this because in the translations, Purdavud includes citations. And the citations, in the, in the trans, he also had commentary along with the translations. And the commentaries, Purdavud's commentaries on the Gattas are full of citations to Parsi scholars that uh, helped him during these two or three years that he was in Bombay to learn the Avesta in a way that would help him to translate it into Persian. Din Shah Irani facilitated Purdavud's engagement with these Parsi scholars, uh, whose work Purdavud cites uh, in, in, these, in these writings. Purdavud was, in fact, effusive in expressing his gratitude to Irani 
for helping to make the publication of the Avesta translations possible. Uh, and he writes, and I think I have that for you here, uh, Purdavud writes in the introduction, I think it's the volume two of the Gattas, he says, if our fellow countrymen have come to know the Avesta, this is in the introduction, and have access to thousand-year-old texts, <clears throat> and if they come to know the religion of their ancestors in a way contrary to that posed by enemies and impostors, and if the followers of this ancient faith in Iran and those who like the texts of their forebears to appear after a thousand years in their own native vernacular language in a few volumes, you can, it's a very run-on sentence, but that's the Persian for you, okay? <laughs> Uh, dealing with Zoro, then these people are indebted to the work and labor of this great man, Irani, referring to Irani. It is clear that anyone who likes the knowledge and learning, uh, as well as the glory and greatness of ancient Iran, is grateful to Dinsha Irani for publishing and bringing to life uh, the lost past of our nation. Uh, Purdavud's acknowledgement of Dinsha Irani is important because, you know, Purdavud himself acknowledges Irani, but sort of the, the later historiography of this period really doesn't. Uh, and it's, uh, it's an indication of the importance of not only Irani, but of this broader network of textual and intellectual exchange that became possible between Iranians and Parsis by the 1920s and 1930s. This exchange, in part, grew out of the older religious and cultural connections uh, that had their roots in the pre-20th century period. By the 1920s and 30s, however, the commercial ties linking Iran and India, combined with the, the publishing patronage of the Parsi charitable foundations, as well as the political interest of the new Pahlavi state in constructing its official nationalism, all worked together to place the life and work of Din Shah Irani at the center of Iran and India's early 20th century transnational cultural and intellectual history. Uh, and you know, there's just a few more examples uh, of these texts, uh, <clears throat> but I think in the interest of time, maybe I'll, I'll stop there and I'll be happy to uh, ask some questions or answer some questions if my book is still floating around. Did somebody run off with it? Oh, okay. Okay, good. <laughs> so yes, thank you.